Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we are talking about philanthropy, and in particular, we're exploring the arguments in defense of philanthropy. Uh, many people who are in this field know that uh, there have been some attacks, some um, leveling of uh, criticisms on philanthropy. And uh, and today we have a wonderful guest, Beth Breeze, who will shed light on the merits of philanthropy, the arguments in defense of philanthropy. Now, Beth is the director of the Center for Philanthropy at the University of Kent. She is also the author of a recent book, In Defense of Philanthropy, which received a very nice review in the Wall Street Journal. And, uh, and it's interesting because today we have the tables turned a little bit. It was close to 10 years ago when Beth interviewed me for some research she was doing on philanthropy. And so today I have the pleasure of interviewing her. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, today it's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Beth Breeze, who is the director of the Center for Philanthropy at the University of Kent. Beth, it's so good to see you again. Welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you, Alberta. I'm delighted to turn the tables today. <laughs> great, great. Tell us a little bit about philanthropy and uh, and the state of affairs. What, why is it that we need to defend philanthropy? Thanks, Alberta. So you mentioned that um, you know everybody knows philanthropy is under attack. And I think really that in a nutshell sums up where the book came from. It, it seemed to just suddenly become... Um, accepted knowledge, um, proven almost, um, that, that philanthropy was inherently problematic, um, verging on illegitimate, according to some critics. And I just, year on year, kept seeing more books coming out making this argument, more talks at you know conferences and events, more memes on social media, more articles in uh, newspapers. Um, and, and there just seemed this big disjoint between this, this proven, accepted, you know, decided upon view that philanthropy was, um, you know, as I say, inherently problematic. And my day-to-day -day reality, which involves interviewing donors, especially those giving larger amounts, and also uh, talking and meeting with people who work in all different parts of the philanthropy sector, whether as fundraisers, as charity leaders, as grant makers, and so on. And, and it just seemed really incompatible, this idea that everything was, was, was problematic and, and difficult and peopled by difficult uh, problematic people um, and then the actual people I was meeting to interview them about their giving or about their grant making um, and and what I also noticed was that other people also had spotted this disjoint so we would sit around you know in the in the cafes or in the bar saying gosh you know um, this argument doesn't doesn't sort of strike us as entirely true it's very unnuanced it's very generalized you know they seem to be saying all philanthropy is, is about power. You know, all big donors have secret agendas. You know, all philanthropy is causing more harm than it helps. You know, 
this this argument is being repeated and repeated. We don't agree, but we don't hear anyone disagreeing. So really, that's why I thought, gosh, I'm going to have to buckle down and, and, and come up with a response then if if, uh, uh, if it's not going to come from anywhere else. There needed to be a pushback. There needed to be a counterbalance. And so that's what I've spent the last few years uh, working on and thinking about and talking to an awful lot of colleagues, because I'm certainly not the only person who feels this view. And I've, I've uh, really benefited from talking to others who also know about the positive potential of philanthropy, the good that it does on a daily basis, uh, the good that it strives to do to make a better world. You know, many of us know this and I just felt it needed setting down. So I hope that's what I've achieved uh, in the book In Defense of Philanthropy. Yeah. And now your track record in researching this field isn't just a track record that that, that materialized while you were doing research for the book, but actually uh, tell us a little bit about your your journey because you were, you were the, the lead researcher when it came to putting together the case studies for the Coots Million Dollar Donors Report over many years, talking to I don't know how many philanthropists who were giving those seven-figure or higher uh, sums. Give us a little bit of a flavor for that um, that experience, that track record. Sure, happy to do so. And in fact, it goes back a little bit um, further than that because I began as a fundraiser. So I, um, you know, when I graduated, all newly idealistic and wanting to make the world a better place. You know, where do you where do you work if that's what you want to do? Well, um, I dabbled in politics for a bit, and I think that definitely can make the world a better place. Um, but actually, what suited me and my skills better was uh, working in the nonprofit sector, in particular in in fundraising, because I really absolutely loved and still love bringing together people who've got resources to spare and organisations that need those resources. And, and I've always thought of fundraising as sort of a matchmaking job and the joy that happens when you bring together a donor who really cares about an issue uh, and an organisation that's doing great work on that issue. And then together in that partnership, they can make great things happen. So I spent about a decade being a fundraiser before I, I also wanted to scratch that itch of doing more research myself and, and came to do the PhD at the University of Kent and have stayed here since. So I'm now on the side of trying to understand it and teach about it and, and research it and so on. So for the first 10 years of, of, of the, my role in academia, each year I produced the Million Pound Donor Report. And that was the most wonderful privilege because I got to go and interview people who had given um, donations, single donations of at least seven figures or more, often a lot more. And sometimes I spoke to people like yourself who helped to secure um, and bring about those uh, th those large donations. So I spent, you know, again, having been a fundraising practitioner, uh, meeting donors, I then spent another 10 years talking to them and really specifically asking, you know, what are your motivations? What are you trying to achieve? How does it all work? What do you expect from your charity partners? Um, asking the fundraisers, what do you hope for from the people who support you? So again, the 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 reality that I saw during that time was exactly that of people who were passionate about a cause, often because they'd been touched by it personally. There's an awful lot of autobiographical personal motivation in philanthropy. You know, they have a family member who's had an illness or they come from a, a, a town or a country that's got that, got, uh, that needs help or they have a particular passion for a hobby, you know, theatre, music and so on. So, and sometimes also those donors were quite frustrated and quite angry. They felt the world shouldn't be this way and they wanted to do something about it. So huge mix of motivations from compassion to gratitude to frustration and anger. And all the more when this, this kind of slew of critique started to come out in the past 10 years or so, I couldn't help but think, well, that's not what donors are saying. That's not how they talk about their giving. Um, yes, of course, um, some of them get to have their name on a building, but do you really think that's the only thing? Like they could use that money for so in so many other ways to enjoy themselves and benefit themselves if that's what they wanted to do. And I just felt that those 20 odd years I'd spent being in and around philanthropy could be of use 
um, to tell, as I say, the different, the other side of this story. And that's why the book is really peopled with lots of examples of donors who don't fit this stereotype of being raging egotists and you know, tax dodgers and people who are just trying to show off or reputation wash and so on. Um, I'm, I'm not for a minute saying there are no philanthropists with motives that, that, that wouldn't be entirely, you know, honourable. I, I, you know, that's not my point at all. But my point is that many, many donors uh, come from a very different place to what the critics imagine. Um, so I wanted to you know, share, share those stories and explain how very complex philanthropy is, but how fundamentally it's about people with resources helping those who need resources, um, who can then use that money for good. Indeed, indeed. And what are some of the biggest arguments that you're you're hearing coming against philanthropy these days? What are what are the main things? And you you, you alluded to some of them. Mm. Maybe maybe vanity, maybe uh, signaling virtue, maybe having a more tax efficient uh, engagement. What are the main things that are yeah. coming up that you're you're fielding that you think you need to be defended against? So all of those things you mentioned are definitely there. And, and one a large part of my task in writing the book was to try and impose some order on this kind of noise. If, at the very beginning, it felt just like a wall of critical noise, you know, a chorus of criticism that, that was a bit unending and, and seemed to um, you know, touch all, all, all different uh, points. I mean, I'll give you one example of, you would get sometimes get criticism, which would be, um, oh, so just because just so-and-so has given a million or 10 million, that's only a tiny fraction of their giving. You know, actually they made that amount of money in, the, in a minute you know so there'll be lots of critique around the, the tiny size of giving and, and maybe uh, a feeling that it was hypocritical to think you were doing something good if it was such a small fraction of your available wealth so you, you get a lot of that kind of criticism you also get this it does more more harm than good criticism mm-hmm. you know they think they're doing good but actually it's making the world worse it's it's embedding systemic problems it's it's deferring better governmental systemic you know universal solutions so those two arguments have a lot of um, uh, adherents, advocates for them, but they're actually intention. You know, if you think something's bad, if you think it causes more harm than good, then why would you want more of it? So the fact that it's a tiny fraction, you would think would be, um, you know, would would be appreciated by those who think the philanthropy is a problem. So you can't you can't win. It's either too little or it's causing a problem. There's too much of it. Um, I just felt that was a bit illogical to hold both those two views. You know, you're not giving enough, but when you do give, it causes a problem. Well, why do you want them to give then? Another example, maybe a little bit easier to explain, is the one around anonymity. You know, when people put their name on a building, people say, "Oh gosh, you're only doing it because you've got an ego and you want everyone to, you know, see, you know, see you." and think well of you then if people don't give publicly if they give anonymously ah you're giving secretively there's no transparency you're doing something dodgy what what strings are you pulling what do we not know about what you're doing so there's just lots of these lose-lose situations going on in philanthropy which makes me wonder if actually it's not how they're doing it it's just people the critics have got a problem with philanthropy itself they're not it's not particularly how it's executed because whichever way you do it it seems to still uh, generate uh, some somebody will still have a problem with it so what i tried to do was was try and impose some order on this kind of wall of noise and i came up with three groups of criticism and they overlap to some extent but let me just tell you how i tried and other people may well have a different typology and I'd, I'd love to hear if they do but my best my best attempt at doing it was firstly I, I saw an academic critique and that was you know the really scholarly thoughtful uh, writing often coming out of sort of uh, west coast American universities Stanford which 
Stanford, for example. Yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely some fabulous scholars there. But they're writing about um, how philanthropy impacts on democracy. And, and by when I say how, I mean, you know, it undermines it. It causes problems for it, uh, for democracy, they say. Um, the relationship between philanthropy and power, um, the relationship between philanthropy and inequality. So lots of writing about how philanthropy sits uneasily um, with, with those um, things, which, you know, most people, most of us are in favour of democracy and equality and, um, <clears throat> and not having power relations that are uh, certainly not encouraging them. So the academic critique very much comes from that angle, kind of the, the, the how philanthropy is done, especially focused on the foundation form. I mean, it's ironic, really, because actually in all of giving, for, uh, foundation giving is only probably less than 20 percent. Certainly when I've done the figures, it's more like 12 or 15 percent in the UK. But of course, that will differ around the world. But it's certainly not the major part of giving. And a lot of these um, scholarly critiques assume that really philanthropy is equivalent to foundation philanthropy, which it isn't. So that's one critique. Then you've got what I call the insider critique. And as the name suggests, that comes from within the charity sector. So this is people who maybe are running nonprofits or who are you know, of the nonprofit world themselves who are saying we're giving to the wrong things. So this is very much about the what of philanthropy. So saying, you know, we, we should be funding only life saving, um, you know, if, things that you can measure in terms of your know, life saved or effectiveness, not giving to things like um, you know, the arts or maybe advocacy campaigns where you can't exactly pin down what you've done. So this insider critique goes back many, many decades. I mean, in the, in the, the Victorians were always worried that people were not giving, not giving well enough and the, the charity organisation society would advocate for you know, more, more scientific philanthropy, better use of research so you can distribute money well. And, and of course, you know, there's truth in, in both of these critiques that I've mentioned so far. You know, we, we should be careful of the impact of philanthropy on democracy and power relations and we should try and make sure that our money uh, is used effectively but every donor I've ever met wants to make sure their money is, is spent effectively and the insider critique and um, the latest iteration of it is what you call effective altruism tends to have a very very narrow view of what what is good philanthropy um, and much as I can see the benefits of, of encouraging especially younger professionals to think really carefully about what they give to and often to give more I think there's also a real danger in in saying, you know, my philanthropy is better than your philanthropy. You know, I'm going to judge what you give to. You know, who, who made us the philanthropy police? You know, how, why do we get to decide? There are many different kinds of good, short-term, long-term, um, enhancing life as well as saving life. So that's the second critique. And then the third one is the one I'm, I've got the least time for. Hmm. I can see merit in both of the first two, but the third one I call the populist critique. And like all kinds of populism, it provides very simple answers to very complex questions. So this is the critique that just says all philanthropists are idiots. They're all bad. They're fools. It's an elite charade. Um, you know, they, they're, they're pulling the wool over our eyes. It tends to focus an awful lot on the donors' personalities and their relationships. You know, then they're, they're, they're not a good person. Sometimes it even goes into how, what they look like, you know, their, their marriages and so on. This is none of our business and it's got nothing to do with their philanthropic activity. And that's where you find an awful lot of the populist critique on sort of social media. And I really worry in particular because, of course, that's where young people are learning about the world. Um, and in terms of damaging the reputation of philanthropy and assuming it's a bad and problematic thing, I think the populist critique is really quite troublesome. So that's how I've tried to organise the different kinds of critique. I, I like it very much. Very nicely structured, just like an academic would. Uh, so let's dismiss the third point. And uh, let me ask you a little bit about the merits on the first and second. And uh, I mean, one of the things that I heard a lot about within, not just within the philanthropy space, but also within people reading and finding out about philanthropy was just that um, 
you know, if, a, if, a, if an old historical building burns down in Paris, uh, a billion or two materialize for philanthropic funding to restore it overnight. And then in the developing world, if you have the incredibly high percentage of under five mortality rates for children, um, sometimes funding may not get there as quickly as you would like. What's your take on that? Because, you know, how, how do you feel donor motivations are in terms of funding, say, the arts versus funding children who might be dying? Sure, I think it's a really valid question, um, but I think it's it's founded on a sort of, on a, a not very helpful premise that there's more rationing uh, in philanthropy than than that is actually the case. You know, there is we don't need to choose between these things, and most donors don't choose. They see you know a building like Notre Dame or you know many other heritage or cultural or artistic philanthropy as things that relate to what they enjoy, their passions, they want to support them, but they don't tend to say I'm doing that. And therefore, I'm not going to do life-saving uh, philanthropy elsewhere in the world. People can and do both. I mean, I think po possibly it's just a basic category error. You know, the word philanthropy is so incredibly broad. All it means is, you know, we all know is love of humankind. So it includes absolutely everything from, you know, being cheerful and helping your neighbour to making a multi-multi-million pound gift to, to a, a, a you know, heritage building. It's Maybe it's just too broad a word. Uh, and it allows people to imagine that one is a substitute for the other. Um, and in my experience of talking to donors, that's simply not the case. I've never met someone who only funds old buildings and wouldn't give a penny to you know, the starving or people who, who are greatly in need. People do both. What we need, though, is effective demand from all these different causes. You know, when Notre Dame burnt down, the imagery was so profound. You know, everybody kind of stopped and watched this beautiful building. You know, we'd all, many people had been to Paris. Many people had quite key personal memories of, of time spent in that city. So the fundraising ask for it was obviously just that bit easier than for something that people didn't have any direct relationship or connection to. So this is why I always think when we talk about philanthropy, we need to think about the supply side, the donors, but also give equal attention to the demand side, the fundraisers. And that's why I was interested in interviewing both people who give million pound gifts and who ask for million pound gifts. So I think really we framed this question wrongly. It's not that there are some donors who only care about old buildings and don't care about starving children. It's that we need to make sure there's effective demand and opportunities to give and support the whole array of causes because people do and will respond to all those different asks. Mm. One, of the, one of the things that on a follow-up from that sometimes might say, yes, okay, but uh, easier to get your name on a building than it is to put your name on saving X number of lives in the developing world. Sure. And I think, again, there's a mistaken assumption there that people um, are primarily driven by getting their name on a building or even that they want it, um, you know, that, that it is any sort of motivation for them. Often the name on building comes from the asker side. You know, if you put your name on this, it will signal to other people that our organisation can attract uh, people like yourself, it will signal to your peers and your, your um, you know, others who know and admire you. Um, it will show we're open for business for big donations and that you know, you've done due diligence. So one of the case studies, I think the very first million pound donor report I did was Canterbury Cathedral, which is where I live now. The University of Kent is in, in Canterbury. Um, and they've got a big donation from uh, one of the big foundations, I think Garfield Western Foundation, maybe it was about five million. And they said, look, that amount of money was hugely important in going towards our overall target. But even more, you know, or equally important was the fact that it unlocked all those other donors who think, ah, if Western think we're worth this money, then we better take it seriously. So there's a real signaling effect and you can't signal if it's all done anonymously. So having, going public with your donations, having names on buildings, having events where you, you know, say, you know, you introduce someone as a donor, these are not 
you know, to um, pamper the, the donor's ego. Um, they're actually to help with the fundraising side of things. So I, again, I wonder if, if the critiques who've never had any direct experience of philanthropy, I, my sense is that they don't really understand how all that works. They just imagine it's a raging ego demanding their name be put on the building. Whereas I have got you know, personal experience of trying to persuade a donor to put their name on something because I know it will help us raise the, the campaign total. Yeah, excellent. I mean, it is such a multifaceted uh, space, and I, I love the fact that you've given this so much thought and you're covering it from all the different angles. The other, so, in, and then going back to the first point on the governance of philanthropy, and let me let me ask you on, on, on your views on that one, which is a lot of people will say philanthropy is very opaque, particularly foundation philanthropy. And what about these multi-billion dollar endowments that are able to deploy philanthropic gifts uh, in develop in the global south to arguably even change government policy right so who, who who you know they don't they're not elected there's no constituents yet they're the the people running some of these foundations are able to meet with government ministers in many countries in the global south when the citizens of those countries aren't able to to have the same access and uh, and then consequently, Foundations are able to uh, fund pilot projects that eventually lead to systemic change and the embracing of entire policies and projects that um, that were possibly you know thought through and created in some boardroom. Yeah, no, I think those are all really important questions, and we we need to have you know better and clearer answers to them. And I think I'd, I'd break it down a, a bit. I mean, the first point you raised was around transparency. And um, there is more information than people realise out there, and I, I accept that this differs where you are in the world. But in the UK, if I wake up in the morning and a, a news has hit the stories hit the the headlines, um, most recently around the um, donations to different Oxford colleges, the first thing I do is go onto the Charity Commission register and look up those foundations, and it all the information's there. Their governing documents there, their annual accounts are there, their board of you know I can see the names of all their trustees and directors. I can see their annual report. You know, it's all there. It's not hidden um so of course this will differ in different countries if some countries need to have better uh, regulation uh, and transparency and reporting then they should get that fixed but philanthropy per se is not necessarily untransparent i feel that the information uh, you know is is there if people really wanted to find it um i think a lot of times these issues are uh, people perhaps they they don't know um, it's not available in their country so they assume it's not available elsewhere or they have a particular problem in their country and they don't realize actually um, the state philanthropy relationship is different wherever you go well it's different in Scandinavia than it is in England and it's certainly different in England than it is uh, in America so oftentimes these are American problems uh, let's be frank American problems that are extrapolated and assumed to exist across the world uh, and I think the critiques of philanthropy you know I've, I've described them as a universal hammer to to break a, a, an American nut you know it, there are in many ways in which American philanthropy may need to get its house in order absolutely fine do that but don't assume don't don't um, damage the reputation of philanthropy worldwide so I think the transparency issue is, is really is not um, uh, not always as people imagine the unelected point is absolutely worth um, thinking through um, there are many many um, people who hold influence in society who are not elected um, campaigners activists leading business people celebrities um, you know, they we, people have, you know, some of the privilege that some people have that goes with their job is they have a platform. 
So perhaps they're a movie star, perhaps they're a pop star, uh, perhaps they're just a determined uh, teenager from, from Sweden who's you know, managed to uh, mobilise uh, the world around climate change. That's wonderful. We're all you know, delighted that, that people use their platform in those ways, but they're not elected either. I'm thinking of Greta Thunberg there, obviously. Um, so, so I, I suppose it, what I see happening here is people picking out a feature of philanthropy, which is un, inarguable. You know, it is inarguable that because you've got more money in the bank account, you can choose to have some uh, some uh, say and and, and uh, exercise. You know, use those resources to in the way that you you direct. You know, you're not elected and you're not accountable to anybody. But I suppose what my key point here is it, that's not a unique feature of philanthropy. Um, there are other people, many other uh, people in different areas. I mean, if you're a celebrated novelist, people ask your opinion on what's going on in your country. And they're not elected either, but we are interested to hear their views and opinions. They have some insights, they have a platform. Uh, and if they use that platform for well, for good, whether they're a philanthropist or a teenager or a novelist, then I think that's that's much better than having a platform and simply refusing to use it and living in your own little bubble. You know, do we not want engaged citizens who, who try and um, uh, and try and think about what the world's needs are and, and help with them. Um, so I think that that was the, the second part of it. The, the third part, which I would say is, is these things are not set in stone. You know, it's really helpful to point out problems with philanthropy. But if you don't then allow philanthropy to improve or you don't give credit when it does try to improve, that seems almost like the critics don't want improvement to take place. So in some of the issues you just mentioned there, there have been some great initiatives in recent years. I'm thinking on transparency of um, Giving360, which is mm -hmm. a, a, a philanthropist-led attempt to uh, make public you know, where grants have gone. Um, there are other initiatives in other countries where donors have put the money and the time behind making philanthropy more transparent, um, working on power relations with grantees, um, working on um, you know better understanding the history of where their money comes from, and then taking steps to to act on that that new knowledge. You know there are many many uh, ways in which philanthropy is actually very reflective and keen to do better, uh, and it still can do a lot better. It's, it, there's a path of improvement, and it's certainly not not perfect. But I think we have to acknowledge and support those attempts to improve. Uh, and if we simply ignore them. So one of my favourite questions to critics is, you know, what would you say has been the best development in recent years? You know, how do you feel about um, the decolonised philanthropy movement? How do you feel about the trust-based philanthropy movement? And I've not had an answer yet. I don't know. The critics don't seem to either know or want to know about these attempts to improve. Uh, and that, that worries me because I think that's not that's not helpful critique if you're not actually interested in, OK, how do we then build on this and implement it? Is there a forum uh, where there is this really constructive dialogue between those opposing views, the, the, the pros and the, let's not say antis, but the, the, the people who are somewhat critical of philanthropy? That's a really good question. Yeah. There are plenty of forums where philanthropists and grant makers and philanthropy staff come together. I mean, I could spend every day of the year either attending these events, speaking at them, um, writing for them. You know, there, there is no, no shortage of initiatives to try and improve philanthropy. Whether the critics are there or not, I think is a very good question. Or as I say, I'm not even sure they're aware it's happening. So perhaps we, we, we do need to try harder on that. I think at the moment, you've just got two you know, people shouting in different rooms. Um, I hope that my book is not... Um, adding to that because I'm trying to acknowledge that of course there is merit in the criticisms and I think it's important to and if the critics could could acknowledge there is merit in some of the efforts to improve philanthropy then maybe we'd start to be moving to, towards a more constructive place at the moment I don't I can't think of a place where you could go and around the table you know virtual or real table genuinely have people of very different views I think they're shouting at different audiences 
and, and that's a that's a problem yeah yeah well i think we're we're going to try to create that forum then we're going to have to have somebody on the show here who's who's giving us the opposing view um excellent personally as you know i'm a big fan of philanthropy indeed this podcast is about philanthropy and i think so much great good social good can be achieved through philanthropy and uh there are some really valid arguments and very valid areas to explore where there are opportunities to improve philanthropy to improve charities and i think the more research that happens in this field the better um, for sure for sure and i think you know i mean my day job is i'm an academic you know of course i believe in believe in critique that's what we do the the number of essays students essays that i mark saying you need more critical engagement with this topic you know that is what we do that is literally my job but but having analysis all analysis and no solution given that philanthropy is a real world thing you know it's, it's not abstract it's not theory you know it's not just existing in the realm of theory it is a real thing that people are doing philanthropy are being affected by philanthropy um, that it has real world you know implications so we can't talk and think about it as if it's entirely abstract and one of my favorite quotes that I, I, I include in the book it comes from Raymond Levy who wrote a book on fundraising he said um, he calls it Noah's principle he said there should be no credit for predicting rain credit only for building arcs and I, I do very much subscribe to that I'm quite a pragmatic person you, I think you can live in the realm of ideas and scholarship but also be quite pragmatic and I think if you're a philanthropy scholar you actually have to because as I say this is a real thing you know foundations are currently sitting there with money donors have resources people have needs this is a real part of, of, of social life of, of the world and if we just produce texts that say gosh here are five or ten problems with philanthropy the end what are people meant to do with that um so I think that the, the perhaps the meeting point for the critics and the the defenders um, is is to say okay, um, let, you know what? So what? You know well, what happens next? Um, and and perhaps there there can be more um, more more joint thinking, more joint action because it's just I think it's just not good enough to tell people here are the many ways in which philanthropy is flawed and then disappear without saying okay, um, what are we going to do about that then? Because the reality is philanthropy still exists. And if you just if you just analyze without giving solutions, I think what you do is you discourage. Um, people from moving into philanthropy. So you make a lot of money. You think, well, I better, why would I give it away? It's got all these problems. I'll just hold on to it and you know, buy a yacht. And you demoralize those who are already giving. You know, they're invested, the money's already in the foundation, but people are telling them it's causing more harm than good and it's all problematic. And actually, you really, um, I think, harm the people who are working in the philanthropy sector. You know, I meet people who have jobs as fundraisers and so on. And they say, look, I, I came into the sector because I wanted to make the world a better place. Have, have, I, have I chosen the wrong gig? Um, am I in the wrong place? And you know, we need more talent in this sector, not less. So all of these critics that don't uh, lead anywhere, I think, are actually causing you know real world um, problems. Uh, so that that if if I could change any one thing, I would have more people building arcs and less people predicting rain. Mm. Well, perhaps some of these individuals with the constructive criticism on philanthropy might actually end up at the Center for Philanthropy doing some research on philanthropy and finding out a little bit more about it uh, in the process. Tell me a little bit about the Center for Philanthropy at the University of Kent. I know it's been it's been a really um, fascinating journey for you. And uh, and I love the fact that philanthropy is, is gaining prominence within academic circles. Uh, so tell me a little bit about about the center. 
Sure, thank you. Um, yes, I, I love the fact that that now being a philanthropy scholar is is not um, is not something that just sounds very weird. Many, for many years, people thought, "Do you mean philosophy?" You know, <laughs> people would phone the university asking to be put through to the philanthropy department. They get put through to the philosophy department. Excellent. Um, <laughs> and, and one of my real highlights of my career was the year we first graduated some students. We 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 created a master's in philanthropic studies, and I I go to the graduation ceremonies every year because we you know, we teach undergraduates and they do sociology and social policy and and uh, and it's a beautiful you know day at Canterbury Cathedral with all these young people with their gowns and their hats and it's such a celebration but to hear the words you know you know graduating in philanthropic studies after having watched lots of people graduate in economics and geography and history it was such a thrill to hear philanthropic studies articulated as a thing that you study and take seriously and is worth you know spending a couple of years of your life thinking about so I'm really really proud of that and of course that's only been achieved because of all the colleagues at Kent who've, who've um you know who set up the course with me and who teach it and who who put a huge amount of passion into supporting our students most of our students are actually um full-time professionals so they they study part-time alongside their jobs there's a massive commitment for them too but i think they're very they feel like i felt when i was a fundraiser like love the job you know hugely um joyful work hard work but but very satisfying but you just think is there not you know is there research like what, what what's the evidence here why did that event work and that one didn't why did why did those two people of similar wealth why did they seem to get what we're doing and and, and they didn't and, and they've come on the journey with us and and we can't seem to to reach the other um you know why, why does the why are the tensions between the frontline staff and the backroom staff in a charity why why does the governance not always seem to work well yeah there's so many different questions you can ask around around philanthropy so it's really meeting the need I think for people who want to not just do philanthropy but understand it understand the history of it you know where's it come from understand how it differs around the world and so yeah really absolutely love um interacting with the students and many of my ideas developed by talking to the students you know they challenge you of course they do they're postgraduates so they don't just sit there and take notes and say oh Beth thinks this they say no you know Beth you're, you're wrong about that or how about this different point of view and I absolutely love that um, being challenged and learning from them and some of the examples in the book come from students and I note those in, in the acknowledgements and um, the other development um, is that we have PhDs coming through um, we have um, quite a nice thriving community we have about five graduated so far and about another five um working on their doctoral projects now and i would love to see more of that and i'd love to see people doing that with the intention to stay in practice you know doing a phd can often be a way for me it was a way of moving from practice into academia and for some of our students that's, that's the path they want to go on as well but i would be delighted if people said no i want to do a really big serious independent piece of research but I'm planning to stay as a fundraiser or stay as a charity leader because I think they you know they will carry on doing so much good in, in that job but just with a better understanding of, of evidence and and their particular project so the other thing that we do in the centre is we try and do public engagement and I suppose that's really where this book comes in and, and doing this podcast comes in you know I've never wanted to be one of those academics who who sort of um is squirreled squirreled away in a university campus having a nice time but not really sharing um, the insights and the, the, the knowledge, you know, I, I see as very much as part of the public sector. Um, you know, I, I feel incredibly lucky that I get to read and think and talk for a living. But if we've got ideas that are worth sharing, then we need to, to act on that. So that's why I do an awful lot of talks and media work. And I'm always happy to 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 uh, to engage. Uh, it's, in, it's enjoyable anyway, but I do think it's part of the duty of being uh, a publicly engaged scholar. Definitely. What's the key takeaway you'd love to um What's the key thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? 
Okay, thank you for asking that. So I would say I, I'm going to read actually the final sentence of the book, if you don't mind. Go for it. Um, because that's, that, that's where I've tried to articulate. My view is that philanthropy is not perfect, but nor is it inherently problematic. It is improvable, but not illegitimate. And it has a value that urgently needs articulating and defending. Wonderful. Beth, it's been great catching up with you. Long overdue. Uh, good luck with the book. It, uh, I love the fact that it's had such good reviews. And thanks for taking the time to um, to join me and join us on the Do One Better podcast today and to put forward such really thoughtful arguments uh, in defense of philanthropy. Thank you, Alberto. And best of luck to you and to all of your listeners. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. You've been listening to a great chat with Beth Breeze, the director at the Center for Philanthropy at the University of Kent. And if you want to find out information on just about 150 other interviews with remarkable thought leaders, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Do leave us a review. Do leave us a rating if you enjoy the show. And I'll catch you next week.